The following podcast contains spoilers and language that our mothers would prefer we did not use. Like Mate, did we watch a thing this week? Yeah, we did. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to We Watched a Thing. I'm Billy. He's Topher. How have you been, buddy? I'm, I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good myself. Been watching a lot of things. Yourself? Also watching a lot of things. Um, I watched one, um, spoiler alert, very good thing this week. Because I watched Children of Men, mate. Ah, that's um, that's what this episode's about. Good, good on me. <laughs> Teacher's pet, always doing the homework. <laughs> um, but I, I came to it very late because 14 years I'd never seen this movie. So I'm really glad that I was finally forced to watch it because- And indeed, you only watched it last night. I did. <laughs> Why? What? Did you expect I should have watched it earlier? No, I'm just saying that when you say you came late to it, this, like, we really are dealing with current events for Billy here. That That's true. I've only just really processed what I saw. <laughs> All right. Children of Men. This this week, uh, we were watching this at the behest of listener of the show, Anna, who won our Oscar tipping competition. Children of Men is a 2006 dystopian action thriller directed and co-written by Alfonso Cuaron. The screenplay, based on P.D. James' 1992 novel, The Children of Men, was credited to five writers, with Clive Owen making uncredited contributions. Isn't that interesting? Shows us up for all those times we ragged on films with multiple multiple writers. <laughs> Film takes place in 2027, when two decades of human infertility have left society on the brink of collapse. It stars Clive Owen, Julianne Moore, Michael Caine, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Pam Ferris, and Charlie Hunnam. All right, let's get into it. Um, you'd seen this before. Did you see it in 2006? I did. I, I was thinking just this morning about when I saw it. I reckon it was a, uh, a housemate's date. The, I mean, the other way you could put it is that it was when I used to just tag along as the third wheel with the couple I lived with <laughs> to the movies quite regularly. So you then were one of the few people who contributed to the box office takings of this film. Was it not strong? No, it was. It was not. A, it did not make its money back. A budget of seventy-five million only made seventy. Fucking people. I know, isn't that shocking for such a film that has become so renowned? It was a huge critical success at the time, nominated for three Oscars, three BAFTAs, taking home two of them. Um, but yeah, commercially, really bit of a flop. Almost like people aren't that into movies about how shit people are <laughs> in a world gone to shit. I was going to say, interesting choice for a date movie. Um, I believe, from memory- this popped up on, I mean, plugging other shows now, but the the Countdown, one of my favourite shows, they did a list of top 10 date movies. And from memory, this made it on Paul's list for the sole reason that he broke up with the girl that night because she didn't like it. And he was like, well, for that reason, it's worth watching on a date because it, it gets that out of the way early. Also, I suppose, like, by comparison, you know, the lights go up, they look at you and you're like, hey, he's all right. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's better than the UK government, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he's better than the fishers. <laughs> um, so, so your housemate saw this on a date then and you tagged along. Well, <laughs> it's, it's not quite as third wheel as it sounds. You're making it we sound to, very third wheel. <laughs> no, we used to just, like the three of us used to just go to the movies together and it just ha so happened that two of them were married. Did, did you ever sit in the middle? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh, wow. It sounds very sad when you talk about it. <laughs> uh, it was great. We all loved it. 
one of the things I really like about this film is that it doesn't feel the need to explain much to us at all. Like, Theo, Clive Owen's character, has this attitude of, like, who cares what happened? It, ju- it just is. And that just feeds in to the audience. Yeah, it's exceptionally good filmmaking, which obviously is really what makes- I mean, there's a lot of things that make this movie great. The story is- wonderful but the storytelling i think is next level like you look at that opening scene and the amount of exposition quaron is able to give us in 90 seconds largely one shot well i mean or at least designed to look like one shot yes exactly you know we see the coffee shop full of crowded people nobody actually cares about coffee they're just there to watch the news and you know we get everything we need to know in literally 90 seconds, we know about the collapse of mankind. We get told that the youngest human on Earth is 18 years old. We find out what year it is. And more importantly, we see that Clive Owen is the only person in this coffee shop who doesn't care. He's the only person who's actually there to get coffee. <laughs> and because of that, that's what saves him. Like, that, like just what you find out in that 90 seconds is staggering. And it like it continues from there when you think about it. The fact that he then- rocks up to work still, shows us that this is just normal life now. And it's all these little choices that just- the the world building is so good. Even down to the way he gets out of work, he's like, hang on, I've got a way to not be at work today by yeah. using the death of this little flog as an excuse to go home, which we know we know people who would do that. Oh, absolutely. Yes. But- it just goes even deeper from there. Like, the fact that he was in a terrorist bombing is not enough for him to get out of work. He has to lie about caring about this celebrity death. And <laughs> That's a very when, good point. And when you walk through the office, the terrorist bombing isn't on the news. Everybody is just at their desks crying about baby Diego. <laughs> That's right, which tells us- It tells us about baby Diego and, like you said, the fact that there clearly hasn't been anyone born yep. in 18 years. But also- it normalises the bombing. Yes, which is the most important thing, I think. What we're really learning in this first 90 seconds is this is just life now. A terrorist bombing, walking past people in cages, that's all just part of your commute to work now. And we learn that Theo has this kind of cynicism about the world while also being so normalised to it at the same time. And it's it's extremely good characterization. We don't we don't need to know anything about his past. And things are kind of drip-fed to us as we go along, obviously, when we find out about him and Julian and their relationship and stuff. But that doesn't really help inform his character to us. It's his choices and motions throughout the day in that first couple of minutes is really what cements who this guy is to the viewer. It's got a good economy of introducing us to characters all throughout the film, really. Like, he, when we meet uh, Michael Caine's character- and the camera just goes past this one shelf with a bunch of photos and bits of work or whatever, which, like, okay, yeah, sure, it's that's not particularly subtle. But it does tell that the choice of what is on that shelf and what they show us um, depicting his work, his relationship with his wife, we are set up after about 15 seconds. Yes. And Michael, like, Michael Caine's very good in this film, I think, which, like, Michael Caine's a great film star. He's a great- on-screen presence. Yes. He's not always a great actor. No, no. But I think this is great, Kane. I agree. And I think it's amazing, too, how quickly you are able to get out of, 
oh, that's Michael Caine. <laughs> because it did, I'm not going to lie, it took me a while when he first rocked up and was like, what the, what the fuck is Michael Caine doing playing this character? <laughs> like, <laughs> But it's funny, within the first, you know, couple of minutes of him, he really does embody that character and, and he becomes very believable. I t- and I totally buy that character. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I think that's one of the smartest things about the film is the the characterization of even minor characters. And and as you said, it's the economy of of who these people are. It very smartly introduces you to characters and you find out about who they are very quickly cuz realistically, it's a fairly short film. Like for this kind of a dystopian, it feels given the scope of it, yeah, exactly. It feels much larger than it is, and when you look at the runtime, and you're like, oh, actually, it's it's under two hours. It's you know, and the amount of characters that we're introduced to along the way, it would be easy to forget that Julianne Moore really is only in about fifteen minutes of this film. It's funny that I forget every time I watch this film, I forget how little of her we get in the film. Yes. Because when she pops up, like, Clive Owen is was already a name. Like, sure, it, it kind of made sense that he was leading the movie. But then Julianne Moore pops up and it's like, holy shit, there's, there's a movie star. Yes. Yes. And so then it's great when the film sort of- It's kind of a psycho move. Yeah. And it's like, I guess what? She's dead. And it's like, holy shit, I was not- The way that my brain is set up to- read movies is not set up for Julia Moore to just fucking die that quickly. Oh, no. It it was a shocking, shocking moment. And that car scene is one of the best long takes ever, ever captured on film because it serves the story and the storytelling so well. What you see in that couple of minutes in that car, you know, when it's, you know, when they're like passing the egg back and forth to each other, which honestly- Nearly made me vomit because you know how much I hate egg. It's not an egg, Billy. Wasn't it? It's a ping pong ball. Uh, I thought it how was- much force <laughs> do you think? How much force do you think these people have with their breath? I thought it was a hard-boiled egg. They'd be cracking teeth on that thing. Because I said to my wife, that's disgusting. And she said they were married. And I'm like, no, the, the egginess of it. Okay, it's a ping pong ball. All right. Clearly that's- a ping pong ball. Well, that makes things a lot better. <laughs> But but to go from that moment within a couple of minutes to that fiery car rolling in front of them, the panic as they reverse and then, you know, her getting shot out of seemingly nowhere. And given she's been in so little of the film, it's amazing how much they have made us care about her. Like, it's not just a shocking moment. It's a devastating moment. Yeah, she's she's the most heroic character. Absolutely. Yeah. So it really just like in case the world didn't seem grim enough at this point, now we've killed Julianne Moore. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. That's next level grim. <laughs> it's it's worth checking out just for a bit of um, film nerdery. Check out the behind the scenes of that long take. I did this morning. Yeah. Oh, you did. I did. I couldn't believe it. So basically, they had the top of the car completely removed, and they they built this kind of, I guess it's like a crane type thing, but inside the car on a motor so that they could actually spin it around. The most amazing bit to me, and I didn't see the behind the scenes of this, and this must be where they've actually done a second take and spliced them together. The camera then gets out of the car and follows Clive Owen and Chiwetel as as he shoots the police officers and then they get back in the car. That is 
outstanding. Like, technically, the filmmaking of that is crazy. I believe all of the long takes in this film, none of them actually are one take. Right. There's, yep. some, there's some clever 1917 shit in there. But it, that doesn't change the fact that, a, like, a, a serious chunk of those scenes, it really is one take. And then there just happens to be this one point where it's like, okay- Okay, we just need a fucking edit here. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the big, um, I want to say climax, but it's not actually the end. But the rescue scene where he is actually going through the refugee camp and there's the war and he goes up and like- It's one of the more bonkers things I've ever seen shot, it honestly. Is, it is. And I was reading that it took days to actually set up and every time they went for a new take, it took five hours to reset- because mm. of the amount of things that happen in that one take. <laughs> Imagine being the person that fucks something up. Well, that's the thing. So, there were full days where they didn't end up capturing any usable film. Like, so, can you imagine being the studio exec being like, all right, what did you film today? Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> we learned some lessons. Yeah. The thing about that, though, is that at the end of it, let's say you take three days. But then at the end of it, you've got eight minutes locked away. Yeah, it's very economic filmmaking. Like, when you think about some other- Like, think about, for example, filming that with multiple takes and multiple shots and cameras. You'd probably have to run through that many days anyway. For sure. M- possibly even longer. So, this this leads in as a good excuse to just talk about Emmanuel Lebesgue for a bit. This is about six years before he goes on a run of winning three Oscars in a row. Um, the first of which was for another collaboration with Alfonso Cuaron. Was that Birdman? Um, that was Gravity. Oh, Gravity. Oh, of course. Wait, Gravity, Birdman, Revenant. The year before this, he had done The New World for Malik, which, I mean, it honestly might be the best looking film I've ever seen. So, Lebeski, aka Chivo, he's the greatest handheld operator that I think I've ever seen, as well as being a lighting genius, a compositional genius. And he's that good that he actually gives you a moment's pause to say, is Roger Deakins the greatest cinematographer of the century? You know, I probably wind up landing on Deakins, but Chivo is that good that he makes you think about it. And the way that the way the movie's shot, where it's almost entirely, other than those, the long takes in the car and everything, which are obviously on the rigs that you mentioned. Mm. Almost entirely handheld. Yeah, and noticeably so. Noticeably so, but not into that realm of shaky cam. It's shot more like a war correspondent, at least the scenes where there's action taking place. Yes, it's very documentarian. Yeah, and then the quieter scenes tend to still be handheld, but just pulled back on the amount of movement in them so that it Mm. doesn't- there's still a consistent visual style to the film. Yeah, I agree. It's it's amazing to me. It's funny. We had this discussion when we saw 1917 and you were saying that you don't feel it needed to be one continuous shot. And I was saying I think the problem would be that going between really long shots and then, you know, typical editing might be jarring. I think this film proves that that isn't the case because you're right. The style of shooting is so consistent. This was actually in my head when we were talking. I don't think I mentioned it, but this film was specifically in my head. You don't, you all, it almost has the opposite effect where what happens is you don't notice the long takes, really. You don't, you don't sit there going, oh, this is one long take, which is brilliant because you're not distracted by it. It really is adding to the film. 
because it, it what it's doing is giving you so much information without the cuts that, yeah, that's what you don't notice, really, which I think is so well done. You're right. It's interesting, the choice not to use a steady cam. There are moments in the film where I go, oh, it's a little bit shaky, but- I do think, as you say, when you brought up the documentary and look, it, it does kind of add to the storytelling, I think. The first time I saw the film, I actually it didn't twig that that scene in the refugee camp was one shot. Yeah. Someone someone said something to me afterwards about, about that long take. And I was like, that was one take? Yeah. And it wasn't until then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, right, this is it. And it's- it's mind. It's just genuinely mind blowing. The whole design and look of the film is really quite brilliant. the The amount of signage around London of of just you know suspicious signs keeping a lookout, the paranoia and insular nature of what this society has become is really good. And they like they don't do it in your face too often. It's more just like it's genuinely a sign in the background, but. It happens enough that it's just this kind of constant awareness. Yeah. And not to mention just the just the look of the film, the the bars on trains, how dirty the place has become. It's it's no wonder the film costs a lot. Like, yeah, this movie doesn't come cheap. At least there's no way to do it cheap and make it it'll look like the sets of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever bring cats up again. I don't even ever want to think about that film again. Any crossover in the cast? I bet Clive Owen was approached for cats. <laughs> you know what? I bet he probably was, to be honest. <laughs> this was at a point where I think I probably thought Clive Owen was going to become, like, maybe the biggest movie star on Earth. And then, I don't know, it's probably that King Arthur film, <laughs> which I prob- like probably serves him right. We should watch that next week. <laughs> Have you seen it? <laughs> no. It is awful. <laughs> Um, so this film, yeah, it won production design at the BAFTAs and I, I, like this film, it must have been like, apart from being a commercial failure, this was an underrated film Oscar wise as well. So nominated for cinematography, editing and and adapted screenplay. I don't believe it won any of them, but there are so many more things I feel this film could have been nominated for. Like, let's even talk about the sound. The sound design of the film is so so good like it's like i mean apart from just sounding and being mixed excellent you think about like that war type scene but when the baby starts crying and that is enough to silence all the guns and everything apart from that just being an emotional hit of a moment the way the sound is designed in that scene is so excellent and the the decisions on when to use score and when not and and how much of the score is classical operatic pieces it's so so well done down to things like trying to start the car oh yes because like when you're trying to get away is there a more dispiriting sound than a car almost turning over (laughs) yes but not i know it's such a good scene that one it is amazing to me that with the speed the car was rolling down the hill they couldn't get it started but then he gives it a push through mud and they're able to start it well, it may be because you can't be going fast enough and just stuff it up. Well, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> but I, I love the the use of the classical operatic music. It kind of it brings back to mind that scene when he's visiting his. Is it his his 
cousin or I forget who they say it was, the art dealer. Oh, that's played by Danny Houston. Yeah, yeah. And just the the way that, you know, art has become so kind of special, but at the same time, just completely disregarded in this world, you know, and he says, you know- it's just not a priority. Yeah, like, why are you saving this when in a hundred years there'll be no one to see it? (laughs) You know, like, and that's why I think the use of that classical music is so beautiful because it brings back those same themes. I do have to ask, though, what's with the big floating pig? Is that a thing that I'm unaware of? It's a thing from a Pink Floyd album cover. Right. (laughs) Where the pig is above that, that power station. In London, and now at his little art sanctuary, he's, like, actually got- He's, like, recreated He's, it. he's done it, yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> I was just pretty distracted by the pig in that scene, i got to say. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> these two are having a normal conversation, but there's a giant floating pig out the window. Like, why aren't they bringing it up? <laughs> so, we've barely even spoken about- uh, there's, It's interesting. There are so many cast members in this film. We haven't even really spoken about Key- or Miriam yet, two very big players in the cast, arguably, you know, larger characters than Julianne Moore. What's- Because the film kind of changes tack quite a few times, where it goes from this kind of dystopian action film to a bit more of a quieter on-the-run film. Um, Like, what are your kind of favourite moments of the film and your favourite arcs with the characters? Probably on-the-run is my favourite segment from- from jump-starting the car to, well, really the end, actually, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, that's- I think that, that like, that section of the film has the most just rewatch value. Like, if, if that just came on, you'd be like, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll keep watching this. Yeah. I do like that throughout that on- the on-the-run section of the film, it's still completely consistent in- there's there's no one they come across that's a good guy. Even when they come across Mother Superior from Train Spotting, you think, "Hey, this guy's actually all right." Yeah. Until he figures out that he can profit from these people, and and bang, he turns on them on yeah. a dime. Yeah. And she's like, "Jesus Christ!" Like <laughs> I know. it's just it just doesn't let up on you. Yeah. That's why I love the relationship that grows between the three of them, between Theo, Miriam, and and Key. Um, you know, I love that moment when it's revealed that Miriam used to be a midwife mm. when she when she was younger. And when she's talking about what happens to the world without the sound of children in it, that to me, that is one of the most powerful moments of the film. It's a great scene. It's so fantastic. And and when Key is outside on the playground at that time, just kind of highlighting, you know, that she, unlike Theo, actually still has a sense of childlikeness about her, unlike him with all of his cynicism. And it's almost like, well, is that why she was able to conceive almost? Is it because she is not- broken down by this world yet you know like it just it raises a bunch of questions and obviously that the theme of the film is about hope and about what hope can bring and it's almost like well is it is it the lack of hope is that is that what caused this almost and like because like it's all so heavy that it she manages to throw the a lot of the audience i think when she has a little virgin birth gag yes because like no one's joking in this world so when she says that and theo's like what the fuck <laughs> yeah. for a second i'm i'm like what the fuck yeah and then it's like shocking when she laughs at him <laughs> yes yes 
Interestingly, and probably instructively, Theo never touches a gun in the film. I didn't even um, realise that at the I time. I didn't realise that. Is that, that a true I, fact? I, I read it somewhere. I'm just assuming it's true. And then when I thought about it, I was like, well, I certainly can't remember him no, ever same. picking up a gun, which I think is a good little character tie-in for, for who he is, the way he gets sucked into it, where his ex-wife knows that the people she's with, it, this is not what she hoped it was and that these people have, have turned. So she knows she can't leave the pregnant mum with them. She knows that Clive Owen's character, Theo, doesn't want to do this, but that he will, like, eventually, if he's got no choice. If the choice is ditching these, this, this woman or not, she knows she's got a reluctant hero in this guy. Yeah. Um, which is like if Theo was in it, if that character of Theo was in it for for the glory or something, it doesn't work nearly as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That because really, it's funny. The film, while it seems like it is about Key and about the birth of this child, I don't think it really is. It's really about Theo and him reforming hope. Re- really, like he is the character we're following. Yeah, there's a reason the film stops when it does. Well, exactly. And I was going to bring up the ending. It it could have ended earlier. It could have ended as the, the fog was kind of coming over and the camera's zooming out and, and he's presumably dead. But then you see the boat come in. It's interesting, though, then that we still don't follow that through. It's still almost an ambiguous ending in some ways. Do you think Theo lives? Or do you think he's dead? I think he's dead. Yeah, so I think he's dead as well. But it's interesting that you could interpret it as maybe, you know, him being just enough that getting on the hospital boat could save him. But no, I think he's dead as well. Um, but it's a it's a great final scene. And then the way it calls back to the start with the title card just cutting up, but this time with the sound of kids, it's very well done. Interesting to kind of see the parallels with um, today's world. Do do you think that because it's you know they bring up the flu pandemic, which happened the year before infertility? Do do you think there's supposed to be a correlation there in the story that the flu pandemic caused the infertility? Uh, yeah. So I did think about that briefly while watching before then just getting wrapped up in the movie again. Um, it's it's probably unanswerable, really. It's brought up that that there was this pandemic, but then it's never said that. And following on from that. No, it's just, it's just interesting what years and, and things Quaron chooses to give the viewer. Like, that's what I think is one of the most interesting things about this film is that the world building it does is so good that when we just get these little nuggets of things that are probably almost meaningless, it just it adds to the world building somehow. Mm. You know, it's like, why, why tell us that the flu pandemic was in 2008? It's interesting the choices he makes. Well, I reckon I reckon I'm done. How are you scoring Children of Men? I'm strong on Children of Men. I'm an 8 out of 10. Is there a reason for the lack of the two extra points? Sure, it's not as good as Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm an I'm a 9. I I toyed with the score for a while. I was never a 10, but I was between an 8 and a 9 and in the end I just had to bump it up to a 9 because I just think the world building and storytelling is so exceptional. I, I almost think that it's unmatched in those senses. And Jesus, it's aging well. 
It really, really is. I actually had to, because I had forgot what year it was. And so halfway through, I had to pause and check. And I realized, holy shit, this movie's nearly 15 years old. It feels like it could have been made this year. Like, forget how old, forget how old Clive Owen and Julianne Moore are now. And this film, everything about it, its production values, its storytelling, its themes are so relevant, if not almost more relevant today. It's 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 crazy how well this movie holds up. If you haven't seen this movie like me, I would seriously recommend you go watch it right now. I think you can mount a very strong case that this is a uh, a movie that works better in 2020 than when it came out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I watched um, uh, Cruel Intentions this week just because, you know, we've been on a bit of a thing. We watched, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You and then not another teen movie. And somehow that led to wanting to rewatch Cruel Intentions. That movie does not hold up in any way. It is I'm really sad to hear that. It is such a bad movie. Like, I was very high on Cruel Intentions when it came out. I think we all were at the time. We all remember Buffy kissing Selma Blair, but that movie does not hold up. It is one of the worst movies I've watched so far this year. I'm sad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> there was th- that's actually really weird that you say that because just this week I said something at work and I knew it was a quote from a movie, but I had no idea what movie it was from or who said it. And then later that day it just popped into my head that it's a Sarah Michelle Geller line from Cool Intentions. <laughs> and now I can't even think what line it is. <laughs> oh, it's when she does a and maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> you can correct me if this wasn't in the film, but at some point does Sarah Michelle Geller go looking forward to it? She might, honestly. Like, it was just so bad that I, I couldn't tell you any quotable lines from it. <laughs> but that sounds like the kind of thing she- That sounds- That's very Buffy delivery, the way you, you did it there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alrighty. What are we getting to next week, buddy? Uh, okay, we better decide. I think we'll go with a patron suggestion. Okay, then. So- do you remember what, what some of our friends had suggested? Okay, I know LA Confidential was there. Um, oh, yeah. Well, let's let's do LA Confidential then. Good film. And then the week after that, we'll try to get onto a new release if there are any. If not, okay, can we maybe do like a, a comedy or something? Sure. I just like this This was real heavy and LA Confidential is good, but I feel like I'm going to need something light after that. I'm fine with that. Okay, cool. All right, next week then. LA Confidential. All right. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that at wewatchthething.com or wewatchthething at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at wewatchthething. If you want to help support the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wewatchthething, and we'll catch you next week. Watch a movie, folks. Yep, at home with, with while washing your hands. <laughs> See ya. Nah, okay, all right. <laughs> Give me a minute. Hang on, I got, I got to workshop that. <laughs> it was okay for a first attempt. All right, give me, okay. I'm Billy, he's Topher. How you doing, mate? Sorry, just drinking some coffee. I'm with you now. <laughs> Do I need to start again? No, that's great. That's good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs>